Greetings and welcome to episode 4 of Groundings. For those of you who haven't worked it out yet, the whole point of what we're doing here at DTA is the rethinking and repositioning of the history of African people across the world. Our mission is really to begin to deprogram the understanding of history and culture that we've learned through the process of colonization, that we've learned during the process of enslavement, and begin to replace it with a more holistic understanding of what our history is and what its function is in our lives. As part of our recent Sirius B Detox program, we've been working with the powerful visual artist Fawakan. Working with Fawakan has been a truly inspirational experience. We've been working on the DTA project for less than five years, but Fawakan for over 50 years has been creating and sharing ideas and arts which really go to the heart of what we've been trying to achieve in terms of the ideology behind his work. So for his entire career, Fawakan has remained independent. He hasn't been chasing institutions and chasing accolades and chasing position. He's just quietly been reminding those of us who are willing to listen what the true purpose of art is within our cultures and what the true function of an artist could be within our society. For this episode of Groundings, I caught up with Fawakan in his living room in South London and we were surrounded by pieces that he'd created over the years. We talked about his history, about music in 50s London when he came here, um, about why he stopped playing music himself because he used to be a musician. Um, we talked about he how he became a visual artist. And most importantly, we talked about the ideology that really drives his practice. So the interview was really an education for me and I'm very excited to be able to share it with all of you. So let's pick things up at the beginning when I was making sure that I got his name right. I'm not sure whether it's George Fawakan Kelly or Fawakan George Kelly. Which one is it? Well, there is no hard and fast okay. um, way. Yeah? Mm -hmm. um, I adopted the name when I reached a certain point in terms of creating mm -hmm. and understanding. And so I took on the name. And so it isn't set in stone. Some people say Fawakan, George Kelly. Eh? Some okay. people say George Kelly, Fawakan, and so on and so, so on. So I answer, I answer to all of them. What do you say though? What would well, you, if you somebody say? asked me, uh, my name as an artist, I said, I would say Fawakan. Okay. And if they need more, I'll add the George Kelly to it. Okay. Yes. But my my first name is actually Keynes. Mm -hmm. K-E-N-N-E-S-S. Okay. Which is an Irish name. Okay. Um, to go with the last name, Kelly. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but when I first came here, people pronounced it Keynes. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather, who gave me the name, called me Kines. So I stopped using Kines okay. because I was never a Kines. Sorry, a Kines. Mm -hmm. And so they used my middle name. And then I took on this name after the creation of a number of pieces. And it means, it's a Yoruba word, it means one who creates with the hand. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so whichever one you choose, 
Well, it's fine. Four can works for my person, most okay. for me, but I didn't know. And I just realized as I was about to start the introduction, I was like, which way around is it? I've seen it in different ways. So thank you for clearing that up. So one who works with the hands. Yeah. So um, Fawakan works with his hands. And as I've learned, even just before the start of this podcast, in more ways than I thought. So my knowledge of you was actually as a, as a sculptor and an artist. And I would probably throw in cultural activist but you might challenge that um but i didn't know you're also a musician at points too so um was a was a musician okay so that's a definite in the past definite yes past yes definitely okay um and i'd like to start i think we probably should start to put things in context a bit just thinking about um um your origins so kind of where you're born where you grew up and when you started to get involved in because I don't know whether the music or the sculpting came first so when you got involved in something creative so let's start you know thinking about that well I, I was born in Kingston mm-hmm. Jamaica 1943 okay uh, clearly in the middle of the war I wasn't conscious of that though uh, a conscious mess came about I think when I was about three mm-hmm. and it was a it was a Jamaica at the time where people made things they did everything very few things were imported okay um, so you know they would make leather from the the, the, the the cattle that was part of the Jamaican culture going back to the Spanish mm-hmm. um, in fact a lot of the leather the skins were brought to England to be processed but if you wanted a pair of shoes, you'd go to the shoemaker, he would make your pair of shoes. Uh, you go to the dressmaker, the tailor, and so on. And it was a real hive of activity because back in those days, the international trade was in, it's in, was in individual countries, individual communities creating. So they catered for that. You get slowly to a point now where I reckon in a few years' time, only one company will make all the shoes in the world, all the all the, the clothes, mm-hmm. you know. I remember going to Jamaica in the 1980s for the first time and seeing children running around in clothes that were made in China, wow. made in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. and there were no people there anymore creating um, clothes, mm-hmm. the, 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 the school uniform, the clothes you went to church in, everything, including hats, people would weave and so on. So I grew up in a culture where people made things. Mm-hmm. There were no plastic anything. Mm-hmm. So if you look up there, you'll see a, a, a clay, you see a, a, a whole series of clay pots. Mm-hmm. There's one pot there on the, on, the, on the left that was made by the last woman to make pots commercially, clay pots and yabba pots, mm-hmm. which is a clay bowl that you used to cut your salad in um, you, you, you you would rub your cake in mm-hmm. now the, it's all plastic so things were always being made around and I lived on the outskirts I grew up on the outskirts of Kingston in the east um, and so I was at a place where men made bricks the women made pots they build their own houses so as children the games that we play <clears throat> was an imitation of the 
the things that we saw around us. So we would make our own clay pot and we would fire them in our own little kilns. We'd make our own bricks. So I've been making as far back as I can remember because those were the games we played. When I came here, however, in the 19, uh, 1957, mm -hmm. it was like a transformation because here nobody made anything at the time because I think they were moving away from the, the craftsman, the man who made the shoes and the man who made the suits, mm -hmm. yeah? Um, so there wasn't the making of things around me in this country. But I think I got, the first time I went to um, elementary school, the first, I don't know, I don't know, three or four months, all we did uh, was to make these little clay figures. And I used to think that they were um, African, but they're, I'm sure they're actually based on the clay figures of the, the native people who lived on the island before. You know, they looked like Buddha. They had Buddha-shaped shoulders and stuff. Mm -hmm. But that's what I can remember my very first few months in school in, in, in Kingston, actually making solid things before I started to learn my ABC and my multiplication table. Mm -hmm. So that's where all the making and doing came from. Okay, so then... I'm flicking, flicking to something that I was reading on the site earlier about being um, divorced in some way from, or separated, divorce is a bit strong, separated from your African culture. Um, and I kind of, it would be interesting to think about that in two ways, because you mentioned when you came here that nobody made anything, for example. But then I think the context that you'd said it in or wrote it in was that saying that there was a separation even on, in the Caribbean you felt a separation with your African culture so when did when, when were you conscious of that separation? Well I mean growing up there in, in the 40s and 50s uh, Africa was a no-no mm -hmm. it was a negative mm -hmm. so the schoolyard um, stories would be would have been taken from Tarzan movies and Tarzan uh, comic books. The colonial reader, the, 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 what was it called? Royal Reader, which had stories about, you know, missionaries in pots and crazy Africans dancing around. And so those were the notions of Africa that we had mm -hmm. growing up. And that those were the kind of things that went around the schoolyard. So nobody associated with Africa and things African, you understand? Mm -hmm. However, there was this African thing there that wasn't even acknowledged as African. So for example, my aunt uh, was a serious follow follower of Amada. Mm -hmm. And Amada was the, the woman who led the Pocomania group. Mm -hmm. And she would take us there for healing. We'd go to the bomb yard and she would get the consecrated water and wash us with and it would get rid of our ailments and that is African mm -hmm. there's another Pocomania group right next door to us and they would be trumpeting yeah amen 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 and they'd do that for hours until they'd fall down and start speaking in tongues and that's definitely African it's on the ground you you know it's it's a whole other way of 
communicating with the, 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 the ancestral world. Mm -hmm. right? But as children, we weren't conscious of that as being African. Mm -hmm. What African meant was the Tarzan notion of the trees. Africans in trees with tails okay. or having a missionary in a big pot okay all right so it's many many years later being in this country and then starting to make sense of the reality of the world mm -hmm. that you realize how much African there was growing up in in, 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 in Jamaica how, in the 40s and 50s how much Africa how much of Africa did you feel moving to this country in 1957 <laughs> well of course i brought the same thing mm -hmm. with me mm -hmm. the same notion of the the the, the tale and the, the the missionary part mm -hmm. but then my my daughter's mother had a friend called eddie and he was from sierra leone and we became really good friends and this was a guy who was here at university studying some economics or something and of course he didn't have tail you understand <laughs> he didn't have a tail he couldn't probably couldn't even climb a tree <laughs> so that was the beginning of a, a, a transformation mm -hmm. around seeing the the real person the real african not the tarzan kind of um whatever but also, you see, I, I went to the Horniman Museum when I was in school. Okay. And I actually saw a whole different way of the African, which is the Benin bronzes. Mm -hmm. And I think they might have had a couple of Ife pieces, Ife, Ife heads, mm -hmm. which to me totally blew me away because I never imagined a king, an African king. Mm -hmm. Because you don't get African kings in in Tarzan movies <laughs> or comic books, mm -hmm. and so it started a whole new way of looking at Africa. Um, and then, you know, time passes, and you start to read, and you read and read and read. I left school at sixteen. Mm -hmm. I've not been back into institutions, but I, I never stopped reading. So I read everything I needed to to know. I think, for my age, as I as I evolved, so the African gradually transformed. I think after meeting Eddie, into real people okay. that weren't savages. Mm -hmm. Savages is what you get in the Crown Royal Crown Reader, mm -hmm. which was the colonial educational material that we grew up in in the Caribbean. Okay, wow. So in a way you found the different sense of Africa in the heart of Babylon. Yes. <laughs> that's yes, really, that's yes, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's really interesting. Okay. Um, you actually just mentioned institutions. So um, I'm going to, we're going to skip around a little bit, but I'm going to work with what you've said and work in some of the things I wanted to ask you. You just mentioned institutions and you said that you've, um, never never went back into in institutional education so you haven't been formally trained in art for example if formally is even a, the right word to use um so is that a conscious decision that you made that you made at the time not to go back in or how did that come about well i think um it wasn't really conscious mm -hmm. 
it just happened that life was far more interesting outside of the institutions back in the 1950s and 60s. I left school in, in 59. Now, you know, it's a very strange education system because the, I think it was the 48th Education Act created the secondary modern school and the grammar schools. And of course, most of us, in fact, if not all of us, when we arrived here, we were thrown into the dungle heap of, mm. of, 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 of the secondary modern. Okay. You know, so, so it wasn't interesting at all. In fact, I used to love painting and drawing in Jamaica. And I, you know, at the drop of a hat, I would get my crayons or my watercolor out and, and, I, and I'd do paintings. So the second or third lesson I had in art here, I was painting my blue mountains with my coconut trees and my banana plants and the beach and stuff. And the, the, the school teacher was so negative about it I walked out of the class and never went back into another art class. Oh. Always did some kind of private study. Mm -hmm. And so I realized then, you know, that um, I would have had to change too much to fit into this thing. Mm -hmm. But also, the morning my mom was taking me up to the Lambeth Education Authority's office, it was a Monday morning, to... Um, to register me. Okay, so you came to, to Brixton, Brixton at the time. You, Brixton. Yeah. We were crossing Acre Lane, mm -hmm. opposite the town hall, and this madman rushed across the road and said to my mother, don't make a picnic them talk like them people are. And never forget that. Don't yeah. make your picnic them talk like them people are. But in that message, mm -hmm. it was don't let them walk, don't let them talk, don't let them think, don't let them become like these people mm -hmm. they must remain essentially who they okay. were when they landed here okay so we took i took that not consciously mm -hmm. but unconsciously as some kind of uh model to model myself on which is not to become like those people there or mm -hmm. them people yeah because i remember a young lad who i went to school with the first Monday morning. Within about three or four months, he sort of talked about, ah, proper cockney. <laughs> you understand? <laughs> and I, nobody in my class could understand me because I was pure Jamaican. Mm. So I, some Scottish kids linked up with me. They were from Glasgow. Nobody understood them anyway. <laughs> so that was the, the group who took care of me. Mm. So the institution, the education didn't mean anything. Okay. The people that I was around, there were a few people who were wealthy enough to come from the from Jamaica just to study, went to university and so on. But that was a different class of people. The people I grew up with were street, yeah? You learn from those who were slightly older than you. So my cousins who came here from about 59, 60, they brought a style that was evolving in West Kingston, that evolved into the music, the culture, the dress. So that was what we were interested in becoming, okay. being like those guys. The music was blues, 
Yeah, you know the the blue the blues music that became blues dance in, in mm-hmm. Jamaica, but blues music that was brought back from farm workers by farm workers from the U.S., um, from Chicago, New Orleans, mm-hmm. New York, and so on. So that's the music that reggae evolved out of, because those guys imitated mm-hmm. the local Jamaican imitated that until suddenly they buck up on something that became their own music. Okay, so yeah. by, the, by the time you came to the UK, was that in, in a stage of kind of forming or that was something that had formed? No, it was forming. Yeah, yeah. So I remember um, Laurel Akins mm-hmm. was the very first um, musician or singer to sing something that wasn't mental. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. But it wasn't quite American blues, but it had the blue, more blues than it was mental. Oh, okay. That was the very first local recording. And then after that, yeah. And so the music was evolving in Jamaica. And we were keep, we were being kept in touch by the people who were coming up from Jamaica. Mm-hmm. So the latest music, the sound men here would wait for it to come up from Jamaica. And we would become like and behave as though we were in Jamaica. But instead of being in an open air dance hall we were in a room this size 12 by 12 with some huge speaker box blowing you know pounding away and we were recreating but we created something completely different to what was there but that was the style and then I discovered jazz and then it that just kind of preoccupied the mind okay what was the I mean this is in my mind, this is going off the topic that I wanted to speak about, but I'm really interested in this. What was the jazz scene like? When you say discovered, I mean, we're talking about live, we're talking about records from America. What would you it mean? Was, in the beginning, it was records from America mm-hmm. um, that we, that we um, listened to because people were bringing things up, bringing the music up. But there was also jazz here by white English, like Ronnie Scott's, for example. Ronnie Scott's had a club, and there was this white British jazz scene with a few jazz clubs. And then we started to gravitate towards the West End, where the jazz music was. Um, And Joe Harriet, he came up here in 1952 from Jamaica, and he was one of the leading saxophonists, playing at a very high level. Uh, and he was one of the founders of Fusion, which was an Indian and jazz mixture. Mm. Right? So we would follow people like that. Uh, and of course, the sound systems were evolving. So we followed the sound system mm. like you'd follow a football team. Mm. So we were Brixton. We'd follow Brixton sound to West London. What was it? What were your sound at the time? The sound was a, a guy called Suckle. Okay. Count yeah, Suckle yeah, yeah, okay. was a Brixton the Brixton sound, but he wasn't actually from Brixton, he's from West London. But then he went central, right? Is it Q Club? Was Q Club his? No, he, he started off first with the Roaring Twenties mm-hmm. in Carnaby Street, when Carnaby Street was just about to take off. And then he moved from Carnaby Street to Prayer Street in Paddington, and he opened the, the Q Club, mm-hmm. which was a more respectable place. The, the, the Roaring Twenties was like it says, the Roaring Twenties. <laughs> Um, but you had a respectable West London guy called Duke Vin. Now, Vinnie 
was like the first sound system even before Suckle that went into the West End. But he played with with uh, with Joe Harriet at the Marquee, which was a very respectable middle class um, white institution. That's where Vinny played. But Suckle was the rough and tumble okay. Carnaby Street. So then as I mean, I'm assuming you're mostly moving with young black Caribbean people. At that at time, time, yes. So then how how are you received when you're walking into these middle class music, white middle class music establishments? Well, they weren't that kind of... I mean, the musicians, I think, and the clientele were, were white middle class. But they had a, a kind of rootsy approach to the music because you can't you can't play jazz if you haven't got soul mm. and so they had white soul mm. you understand and it it was conducive to allowing black people in you with me mm -hmm. yeah it wasn't exclusive it was okay. like if we let the black people in we'll mix their soul with our soul and then we'll get something else mm -hmm. so you're talking about the pop music industry that evolved in the 60s mm -hmm. with the Rolling Stones for example I remember them playing some real down home blues mm -hmm. at a place called The Scene in Great Windmill Street and they'd be frothing at the mouth from taking purple hearts <laughs> right and then within three or four years they became this huge international but we followed Georgia fame okay Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames, and he played more down down home kind of up tempo mm -hmm. um, Chicago type blues. Mm -hmm. So that was the main scene when we got into the West End. It was the difference between the Rolling Stones, which no black person would go and see, but I was adventurous enough to go and check them out. Mm -hmm. We all followed um, um, Georgie Fame. Right? So it was all about soul. Mm -hmm. And there was a club called the Flamingo Club in Wardour Street, which was where the African-Americans hung out mm -hmm. at the all-nighters, and the Caribbean people gradually became a part of that. Okay, so is this the time when you got into playing music, or were you doing it already? Or no, 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 no. The music playing came much later. Okay. Um, I went to school in Kingston with a guy called Byron Lifehook, mm -hmm. and he—he's the father of Omar Lifehook, right? Mm -hmm. We went to the same school in the fifties in, in in Kingston, and then I met him in Brixton. Here, he was living just around the corner, and he was playing drums with a with a white group, mm -hmm. and they played all they played was blues music. And there came a time when they started to rehearse in my basement. And I would just kind of play rhythms on my knee. And I said, I don't need a drum. I can tap out the rhythms and learn the rhythms on my knee. Mm -hmm. And then I came across a, 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 a conga drum. That was Eartha Kitt's drummer who came here and the tour disintegrated and he sold the drum and I got it from and I started then transposing from my knee to the actual drum. So I would have been about um, 
20 at the time. Okay. okay. And so music became creating music and having music, musicians in my house, in my basement, rehearsing, uh, became the main kind of preoccupation. Okay. And eventually, I joined the band. Okay. But is that this, the same band we're talking no, about? No, this is because I was working as a postman at the time. Okay. And oh, so oh, half, You've done that too? Oh, yeah. I've done that. Okay, <laughs> now I've, I've been a postman. All right. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. <laughs> So <clears throat> half the band were Trinidadians mm -hmm. and the other ha half were Jamaicans mm -hmm. and they had to play reggae which they didn't you know they, they kind of kind of resented but as I was saying I, this is what I was trying to get to the point that it was the birth of the mods mm -hmm. as opposed to the rockers okay. mods were more here Sue's and sharp and their music was was black trendy r&b okay. and reggae but reggae more than anything else mm -hmm. whereas the rockers were into black music but people like little richards mm -hmm. that kind of rock and roll black rock and roll what's his name uh, which one the, the 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 lead chuck berry chuck berry mm -hmm. stuff like that that's what the rockers were in. But the mods were into the kind of music we were in. And they, so that's what we started off playing reggae music. Um, and it just evolved into reggae at that time when I, when I started playing it. Okay, so we're somewhere in the mid 60s. Then. Yes, about 64, okay. 65. Okay, all right. So then was that a, I mean, so you're working at the time and that was a, your kind of nighttime weekend weekend situation yes, yes okay yes. all right interesting so i mean this is because i obviously met i've never met you as an artist in a different different type of artist right. um so since we we're talking about it just before we started this interview it would be interesting to um, to understand how you went from that to playing in Simande, which I didn't know that you were playing in Simande either. Yes, well, after I left the post office, Simande didn't, wasn't Simande, it was just myself, the bass player, Steve Scipio, and Patrick Patterson, the guitarist, playing all this obtuse um, experimental music, more like jazzy kind of stuff. And we had a couple of gigs upstairs, Ronnie's at the time, which was quite a, quite an achievement mm -hmm. but I went on a a, a, um, a camping holiday around Europe mm -hmm. and when I came lasted a whole month when I came back they'd reorganized the band okay. and the band is now Simandi okay and you know my brother is playing in the band with drums my cousin Derek mm -hmm. play saxophone they had a singer they had a, another conga player they had Two more horn players and I'm saying well I, I don't really feel a part of this because mm -hmm. I'm not interested in that the music that was it was the experimental stuff that got uh, me going okay so I never really felt and because it happened and it was presented as some kind of fait accompli mm -hmm. I never really felt like I had anything to do with it okay and eventually we ended up in the recording studio 
and uh, we had to sign a contract and I said I wasn't going to sign a contract mm -hmm. so I never went back and they continued okay so going back to the experimental bit because I think the reason I connect with Simande because there was a kind of for want of a better way of explaining it there was a roots element to right. the music right. so was that something that was present within the experimental music no the experimental was closer to jazz okay to the kind of stuff that the obtuse jazz musicians would play you know without key signature okay. without time signature it just floated around but sounded interesting mm -hmm. okay right so it was almost too structured then too militarized yes, yes, by the yes, time yes 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 it was just like another band okay although it wasn't mm -hmm. because they had this weird fusion of half Guyanese and half Jamaican mm -hmm. couple of Jamaican Rastas who brought Rastafarian rhythms mm -hmm. and then you had obtuse kind of Guyanese Guyanese Calypso mm -hmm. feel which is not like any of the other Calypsos mm -hmm. and they fused that with R&B and came up with that unique um, blend okay. plus the Rastafarian rhythms mm -hmm. and chants okay but you were less interested no the by then I'd, I kind of lost it I'd gone some somewhere else okay so I wanted to start talking about your art but then my understanding is that you went on a trip to Benin and it's actually through that that you began to create more yes. in the way about so it's probably good to speak about how that came about well it was it was like when I I was also playing the flute right. and I used to do a lot of practice because I wanted to play jazz so it's arpeggios and scales day in day out day in day out and I got so tense sometimes that I needed some kind of relief mm -hmm. some release so I went out and bought clay and started modeling. Okay. It was a way of getting rid of that crazy tension. Mm -hmm. um, and I've got two of the pieces that I created at that time. Okay, so, what, so I don't know how much time I've skipped, so which time are we this was, about? This was, this was during the music period. Okay, so it's quite... And I'm still quite, doing okay, the flute, mm -hmm. and, and, and so I've got to get rid of this tension. So there was that. But... Samande went and did a, um, a tour um, supporting Al Green in the US. And then they came back and they had this huge hit with the message. And they then decided, you know, that they would go and do their own kind of frontlining. And so they needed somebody to manage mm -hmm. while they were on the road, like a road manager, sound engineer, blah, 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 blah. And because I was familiar with them, and I two relatives in the band mm -hmm. it was easy for me to go and we spent about five months going up and down the east coast mm -hmm. came back at the end of 73 Jimmy Cliff needed a sound engineer and so they recommended me okay. the management recommended me to Jimmy and so I went to Nigeria with him okay interesting and a part of that was going to meet the Oba in Benin and we travelled up and down all over the place and I saw things that I couldn't explain yeah um, but I also saw people I knew because the ride from the airport 
to the hotel in Lagos was the most amazing. I knew all of the people, but all the people are the same color, right? Mm -hmm. But they walk, talk, the tone was the same as the country people in, in Jamaica. Yeah, because a lot of them spoke pidgin, mm -hmm. and pidgin is like the, the lingua franca out of which the Jamaican language evolved. Same language, you can listen and you can understand maybe 60%, 70% of it. So it was a really familiar place. Okay. Yeah? And we did the tour. I ended up getting stranded there. And I stayed there for three months when I was sort of been there, sort of been there for three weeks. Mm -hmm. And it was the making of me because here I am. I'd never gone to a, a space as kind of exotically strange. You know what I mean? Coming from Jamaica where you have strangeness, but to the extent where we would drive for four or five hours through on dirt roads, through palm palm plantations, and you would see maybe three or four naked men and women walking down the street through the bush. It was just unbelievable. Anyway, after the, the, the getting stranded and got back to London but before I came back to London, I, I was on the waterfront in Lagos and I saw a pair of rubber tire sandals. And those were the sandals that Rasta men wore mm -hmm. as a child in Jamaica when Rasta foreignism just started. Mm -hmm. And they, they used to call them power. Okay. And I brought back a pair. And 1975, I'm, I decided I would make some of these things for Carnival. And um, what's his name? One of the sound men, Brixton sound man from that time. It was before Coxon? Coxon. Okay. Coxon said, why make me a pair of them thing, you know? And he said, I make from whole posse. So all of the people who followed him came and measured them and made these rubber tire sandals. And so I made up a whole lot of, took them to Carnival. Mm -hmm. And within, I don't know, four or five hours, I sold them all on <laughs> the first day. Wow. And that was what it, that's what started the art. Okay. Because I had some leftover at the end of 75 Carnival and I took it to this Jewish friend in, a, in Portobello Road who had a store and said, he says, yeah, I can sell them. But create an image, that a poster that would tell what it. Mm -hmm. So I actually created a, a rubber tie with a raster head with locks, okay. and put it up in the in the in the, in, the, in his shop. Okay. And from that, I started to do T-shirts. I started to silk screen printing, all kinds of things. Then Rasta became really big, and I made, you know, made a living now because I'd left the post office mm -hmm. then got rid of me because I took six months off <laughs> exactly uh -huh. so I'm now making a, a, a kind of basic living from arts and crafts so how to say so in a way because there's something you mentioned which I want to get into and um, thinking about 
art as something functional as part of life rather than something that's abstracted from that's you right. know so then you got into it in a way like that as well it's yes. through a, a kind of commercial route in a sense but that's then right. making stuff that people actually use that's right okay but then I had a dream one night mm. and a Sunday night and the dream says get hold of serapite plaster okay what's what's serapite plaster is a finishing plaster okay yeah um, and you could actually use that to create art okay. could create objects so I went out and bought some plaster and the result of it is all these things that you see here okay yeah we should probably say the sort of context you mentioned the pots you earlier on and I meant to say then so we're currently in your living room surrounded by amazing works of art you've done over the years so these you're saying that some of these are the result of you well this is the result of the plaster because with the plaster you mix it and you you model it Mm -hmm. in its in its wet state then when it hardens you then chisel it which is sculpting okay so i'm learning to add i'm taking away Mm -hmm. which is modeling and it's and sculpting which is the art of creating sculptures and that came out of a dream the, the the idea for using the plaster mm-hmm. came out of a dream interesting and then in terms of the what's the word the technique of doing that how did you learn well it? it's just trial and error because okay. I've not had a lesson from anyone mm-hmm. the inspiration comes from the thought processes and of course after going to Africa and seeing another side of Africa which is you know the Nigerian side of Africa and linking it up with the environment I grew up with which was very African without even being conscious of it in Jamaica it made sense okay yeah so it it was all about you know it's like you go through one door and you look you're in a room and there are many doors and you open one and then you learn your way through the various rooms until you arrive at creating a piece of work that you can have produced in bronze. Okay. Mm. Yeah? Okay. I mean, I don't know how it's done. I just know that I'm working on a piece of... And when it starts to resonate and it reaches a certain level and I feel really satisfied that it is actually talking to me, Mm -hmm. then I know that piece is finished. Okay. Yeah? And I know that I won't find that in European art because European art is almost like, especially sculpture, is almost like the negation of the, the realm of the notion of spirit. Okay. And I believe that the thing should have spirit and it, the spirit should resonate. Okay, that's interesting. When you say the negation of spirit, can you unpack that a little bit? What do you mean by that? Well, without being conscious of it and only over the last couple of years been looking at European history mm-hmm. in more detail because you know I traveled all over Europe mm-hmm. you know the ancient classical Rome the classical Greek Egypt the whole of them places there mm-hmm. and come to that conclusion that there was a period in European history where they call it the renaissance mm-hmm. the rebirth the rebirth of the classical. Okay. Now there was no science in, in the ancient in, in, in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. 
because there was no algebra. Algebra is the basis of, of science, as we know science, and that came about from the Arabs. Okay. Right? But what the Renaissance did was, it was the awakening of what I call the barbarous Westerners and Northerners, the same people who sacked Rome, mm -hmm. that, that the Romans saw as savages, mm -hmm. with the Germanic people from the North. Mm -hmm. The people in the West of Europe were enslaved by the Romans. Mm -hmm. And they were the ones now who were in the ascendancy, who took on the ancient classic okay. as a rebirth of the classical, but in their own image. So what they did at that point was evolved into something called the Enlightenment movement, mm -hmm. the age of reason. Now reason eventually became the negation of spirit and spirituality. Because okay. you thought the, the ancient Greeks would talk about anima, animus, mm -hmm. which is that which animates mm -hmm. the male and the female element within. Mm -hmm. You understand? So by the time you get to the renaissance and the age of reason and the enlightenment they split the thing away so even within the religion the protestant religion which evolved then moved away from the notion that catholicism had which is magic they believe in uh you can get rid of doppy mm -hmm. the priest will exorcise mm -hmm. of, of 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 a ghost now you can't tell that to a, a protestant they'd laugh at you mm -hmm. so European art from the Renaissance evolved away from spirit and spirituality. So they're devoid. And it's it's something that I think they're quite happy and pleased with, that now it is science. Before, it was some mumbo-jumbo um, um, spirit and spirituality. Interesting. Isn't it interesting that science, Western science, is actually starting to slowly make discoveries to that. <laughs> of, of the, the the very thing that yes. is, is left. Because if you look at, was it quantum? Mm -hmm. You know, quantum is like magic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you understand? So, yeah. so where we are at this point now is a society based on logic, mm -hmm. as on reason. Mm -hmm. And you can't tell a person who believe in reason about ghosts. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Although, belief in, in things like ghosts is what brought civilization to what it is. Okay. And when you cut off that spirit, which is what is happening with the African, the African is, is gradually being forced away from his spiritual self mm -hmm. and, and become an enlightened and reasoned individual. Okay. And that is what we're going through now. But the Japanese, for example, have gone through that. Mm -hmm. And they're now going back to their original Shinto, okay. which is a religion based on animism, mm -hmm. which is the the spirit of the mountain, the, the lakes, the rivers, and so on. They're a, seriously back into that. I have a good friend who's um, he's a Haitian, he's a drummer from Haiti, and he said when he first went, to, they flew him to Japan to do some concert, and he said when he saw the temples, he said, yes. oh no, this is the same yeah, thing. Yeah, it's the I same do. thing we're doing in, 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 in Haiti, in, in Africa. Mm. But they've gone far enough along the road of the reasoned and the rational. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Because for a long time, Shintoism was on the heavy manners. Mm -hmm. And it tried to get rid of it, but it's gradually coming back. 
because you can only go so far with logic and reason so okay. you have to go back to and that's what's happened to us we're fine but we're a long way behind as African people most of us don't even realize that there's a dichotomy between rational and spiritual. Mm. And Re that, reason has its place, I would say. Well, but of course it's just, it does. It's just, it always it's, did, it's, it's but you can't balance. have a preponderance of, of mm -hmm. rational. This is little, they do all kind of foolishness in the name of rationality and mm -hmm. then force other people. You see, so I create art that I believe have spirit. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't resonate, then it it's not it's not right. So I work on it until it resonates, and the resonate resonance has to be a spiritual expression, okay, a spiritual one. Okay, and you talk about your references, some of your references being pre-colonial Africa, and it sounds like the Nile Nile Valley culture, like ancient Nile Valley culture, because he says here it's, it said pre-colonial Africa and Egypt. Yes, yes. So, uh, why, why, what's, you know, what's that about? What's your, why is that your, an influence for you? Well, I, I, looked, I looked at um, ancient Egypt mm -hmm. as part of understanding myself as, a, as, a, as an African, mm -hmm. you know, and that, I think, has a lot to do with African-Americans' mm -hmm. notion of um, Africa mm -hmm. and ancient Egypt mother of civilization so you have to go back there to make sense of mm -hmm. and I did a lot of stuff around researching to find out eventually I ended up going to the Valley of the Kings mm -hmm. and going into the, the temples and going into the the tombs and stuff like that so you know I'm wearing something around my neck which have something from Nefertiti's tomb in it okay. right? so that's how spiritual and I believe that I have to pay, you know, be reverential towards my ancestors and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Because without them and all that, I wouldn't be here sitting in front of you. And they must have done something right. Yeah? Mm -hmm. They yeah. must have been doing the right thing so that we could evolve out of that. Mm -hmm. And that we shouldn't forget that. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't follow because someone has a gun up against your head forcing you to become rational and to forget about your past. So I had to go back to Egypt to find that. Mm -hmm. And then from Egypt, because there's a lot of stuff written about Egypt. Mm -hmm. From Egypt, you then go into what I call pre-colonial Africa, mm -hmm. which I think at the colonizing of Africa was the death of Africa and things mm -hmm. African. You look at, say, the Benin culture. You look at the culture of Ife that produced some of the most beautiful objects bronze objects ever created and the Europeans came and totally wiped that out Christianized the people and, and turned them into idiots you understand you ask them how how was that piece of Ife bronze produced and they have no idea yeah this is quite key so you're talking about um, Christianizing of of Africa yeah and the loss the of... The purging um, of... Yeah. Of its knowledge. Okay. Of its knowledge base. Especially, I mean, to me, I put Ife and Benin bronze on a pinnacle. Mm -hmm. That nothing else, no other bronze, whether it's from ancient China, ancient India, 
ancient Egypt even mm. come anywhere near because I see me expressed in it so you know clearly and all that knowledge has disappeared because the reality is that those Ife pieces were not actually bronze they were made of copper right Europeans can't figure out how these savages were able to produce that level cast that level of perfection from copper because copper sticks to the side of the mold it doesn't run in run through to the bottom that's why they make an alloy mm -hmm. of copper with tin and other things to create bronze okay and they're pure, they're pure copy yes <laughs> <laughs> so that okay. knowledge is gone mm -hmm. yeah the white man would do anything to acquire that and so would those Africans in Nigeria would do anything to be able to go back to that point and that knowledge that created those objects. So thinking about the context of those objects and also because my understanding is that you don't, which I touched on before, you don't place your art in, in a context that's outside of the day-to-day -day life or outside of... Um, yeah, it's not it's not an abstract thing. No. It's something that's part of life. So is that something that you um have observed when in your travels in the African continent and and something I mean it would be good to speak a little bit about the the place of art in society is as you see it. <laughs> well, we're talking about animism. Mm -hmm. Um culture that is animistic. So, for example, fetish, fetishism, uh, where, you know, you can take illness out of one person and put it into a, 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 a facsimile. Mm -hmm. yeah, so you drive a, pretend you're driving a nail into the person's body. You take that nail and drive it into the wood, wooden object, and you take out the evil. So, you know, the, the priests actually knew what they were doing. And they still do. Because even though the, the, the Christians and the, and the colonial masters have tried, they've not gotten rid of those things. Mm -hmm. And so you'll have this dual society where Africans will go to the traditional and then on Sunday they'll dress up and go to church mm -hmm. and do whatever the Christians do. But this thing runs parallel to life. Yeah? So the, the, the art is used to tell stories mm -hmm. that the Egungs of Nigeria, which represent the archetypal first member mm -hmm. of the group, of the tribe. Mm -hmm. And once a year they come out and, and people pay homage to them. It's purposeful. It's not something you stick up on a wall. Mm -hmm. However, I just have discovered that the pre-Christian Europe was not much different. I have friends, Scandinavian friends, who don't believe in Christianity. Mm -hmm. They believe in the pre-Christian Nordic gods mm -hmm. and the Nordic religions and all the... You have Danish friends who have, um, have a Nissen, which is what the, the gnomes have evolved out of. Okay. And so at Christmas they would take them out and they, it was all about getting rid of evil spirit. This is what the Nissen would do. I have a, a, a Swedish friend who still deal with Woden and uh, Heimdall and all of those Nordic gods. Mm -hmm. 
You understand? Mm -hmm. So I discovered in England that the oak was sacred. Yeah, the oak tree is a sacred tree. Mm -hmm. But ironically, it's the oak trees they chop down to make the slave ships and take us away. Wow. You know, so, but there are lots of Europeans who have, well, the thing is about Christianity is that it's 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 fading among the Europeans. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them say they don't believe in anything, mm -hmm. but a lot of them are going back to those pre-Christian notions okay. of the realm of spirit, because that kind of spirituality arrived, was there long before the uh, Enlightenment and the Age of Reason. So in our societies, you know, we use our imagination, we understand the, na the nature of the spirit, yeah, it's negative and it's positive, and we use it. Mm -hmm. And that's how we've survived. That's how we've evolved for however long we've been on this earth as Africans. So then, so what's wrong with art for art's sake? Then art as commerce? What you, well, just, just, what's wrong with creating a piece of art just because you like how it looks and then you put it in a space and, other, and invite other people to interpret it as they wish to interpret it? Well, it might have some spiritual function. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it, it's totally devoid of spirit because if you can stand in it in front of it and get some kind of spiritual feeling or communication between yourself and the object it doesn't matter what it is mm -hmm. you can call it a painting or you can call it a piece of sculpture okay i don't think there's anything wrong with that okay. but when you get into art as a commodity art in the marketplace then i think that is something else where you create as you would create any other product for mm. the marketplace. Okay. I don't, I'm not really, not that I don't sell my work, mm -hmm. but the object is not to sell the work. Okay. The original thought is not to sell. And so some of these pieces are created like that they can be reproduced in bronze and sold, but these pieces are not for sale. Okay. These are a manifestation of my culture. Mm -hmm. A lot of them deal with cultural ideals like the goddess of, 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 of the deep sea. Mm -hmm. For example, that Olokun. Mm -hmm. She's a Yoruba um, spirit of the deep ocean that takes care of the spirit of those who decided they'd jump off the slave ship rather than go into, into servitude. And so a lot of that ex the pieces express these ideas, although within the religion you're not supposed to make images of. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Yeah. But I do think that I need to express it and I give myself the license to do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, we've been talking about art in the traditional sense, so it's probably a good time to ask this question. Um, one of the things that you've said that you'll grapple with is, is there a role for art in the traditional sense in our lives today? Um, have you come up with any answers to that? And if so, what? I think they? there is. I think there is. So what, what is the role? Uh, it is around making real. Yeah? that one can touch those abstract and spiritual notions that we transmit as humans. Okay. 
as Africans, making it real. And so all of these pieces tell, is, is the kind of, if you like, materialization of abstract principles, mm -hmm. stuff that a lot of us don't talk about, because every one of them have, a, have something to say about here, mm -hmm. black here, African here, with the, you know, that piece has got a, a European wig on one side, mm -hmm. And it's got nails on the other side, which is yeah. how, you know, we deal with our hair. Um, so it doesn't say this is what it's actually doing, but that's what it does. A, 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 a woman came in here on Sunday and saw that piece and commented on the fact that it's like a political struggle mm -hmm. between the two halves of the, the woman's hair. Okay. Yeah? And I think we need to be able to the artist needs to be able to put that out there mm -hmm. as a challenge to say, you know, imitation is a very, I mean, what you're doing straightening your hair is actually a third-rate imitation of somebody else's cliche, mm -hmm. which one art critic talk, described black art as. Mm -hmm. But it's not just black art, it's black lives mm -hmm. can become simple third-rate imitations of somebody else's wow. stuff. And therefore, you know, we have to struggle against that. Do you need some kind of cult? Do you, do you, this is a, I'm not sure how to phrase the question, but I suppose what I'm trying to say is um, for art to function in that way effectively, does it need to be happen within a cultural context that you've created as well? I mean, is because you've we've spoken a little bit about the kind of dominance of Western culture or the culture of the North. Um, is there some sort of accompanying creation of a diasporic culture that these these pieces need to function within? Then, or how did that? Happen? Well, maybe they are the key to open. You know, they're openers mm -hmm. for the direction in which we should be consciously moving. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I don't know how much role they can play sitting in my, my, my front room or <laughs> occasionally going into a gallery mm -hmm. space. You know? But once you come in and you see them, you're transformed. Mm -hmm. You're not the same anymore. And I think that's the purpose of, 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 of what I do. People call it art, but I get, I get really messed up thinking about it as art because for me art is the stuff I go to the National Gallery to see mm -hmm. to look at so this is not art I've never seen this anywhere else so what is it then well it's a cultural ex a necessary cultural expression okay interesting okay. yeah because mm -hmm. if this isn't said then what will happen to us mm -hmm. you know I'm saying it and there are other people saying it in slightly different ways or even very different ways mm -hmm. but it needs to be said and I don't create it to put it, you know, like I was invited to become a member of the Society of Portrait Sculptors, mm -hmm. very prestigious Cork Street exhibition once a year. And then they asked me to do a, a, a presentation because all they saw were the portraits that I entered. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to know about my art and they invited me to do a, a presentation at the AGM and I did the slide presentation. At the end of it, there was a standing ovation and then everybody went silent. And I knew it was time to leave. Mm -hmm.
because it didn't fit into their notion of what art is or what art is supposed to be. For me, it's a cultural expression that I need to express. And I know there are Africans and non-Africans who are out there, who are out there, who need to consume what I'm expressing. Okay. And we need a lot more of that. We don't need a lot of young artists to win Artists of the Year and be on television and then they stop making statements about who they are and who we are. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They go into the marketplace and I don't think spirituality is about marketplace. No. I mean, they have I to, don't think so. I think they have to coexist, but yes. I don't know whether they're... Yeah. I think there's, there's spaces for each. <laughs> um, I wanted... This is a, probably a perfect place to... Because we've been talking... It's got dark. We've been talking a while. I'm not going to stop just yet, but we'd like to. St- I'd like to stop quite soon. But because okay, so I, I spoke to you a little bit about our project and this idea of decolonizing the archive. And the reason I was interested to talk to you is because it seems like some of the ideas that you've been looking at through um, making things with your hands, um, we I've been thinking about. We've been thinking about in terms of our heritage and how we act and um, develop methodologies for working with our heritage that I guess reassess these kind of ideas of archives and museums and presenting information and how that how that works Um, and just so happens that you had spent quite a lot of time with Len Garrison and there's a bust that you've made of him as well and you said you're involved in black cultural archives so it'd be interesting to get I suppose a little bit of perspective on your what for you is the importance of history and heritage for um, people of the African diaspora living here well I think we have to come to terms with the, our reality mm-hmm. a lot of if you go into a lot of Europeans homes you'll find sculptures African sculptures that are made and they're made they're functional things they use for a ritual or a ceremony, and then they're thrown away, mm-hmm. right? And so they, and so the Europeans will then go and collect those things and bring them home and put it up on their walls. Mm-hmm. Nothing to do with the real functioning of the object. Okay. Its function's finished, but it's taken on taken on a new function. Mm-hmm. We, however, in those traditional societies. Like, for example, the griots in the north, northwest of, 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 of Africa, mm-hmm. who tell the story, who carries the history, mm-hmm. right? They, they, they have a story to tell that can go back a thousand years. Mm-hmm. And so we need that kind of history. Mm-hmm. But how do we do it? Because we can't become griots anymore. Mm-hmm. We have... We have electro- electronic possibilities of becoming griots. Mm-hmm. So we must use them because those stories are necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah? There were no archives in, say, parts of Nigeria where the eguns are, mm-hmm. where the masks are. But they enshrine that history. They enshrine the culture. And when they come out and they dance once a year, they tell a story that goes back to the original archetypes of the group mm-hmm. 
And we have to be conscious of that and find modern, contemporary ways of preserving and conserving. But as you've said, that, um, that example you just gave, part of the preservation or conservation is a very dynamic thing within, for me, my observation of looking at the culture of African peoples, is the preservation is actually a very dynamic thing. It's not necessarily taking something and making sure it doesn't get damaged. Okay. Um, although there's an, as- that's, yes, it, there's an aspect of that, but yeah. that's, that almost happens beyond the realm of By the material. The okay. You know, okay. but and and then when it's transmitted to people, it's a very dynamic process. It's not a lecture. It's a well, it, maybe it is, maybe, but maybe it's not. It's not a, not a lecture that you would go, you would find. Yeah. It, under the label lecture in this society um, and I think that for me that's very interesting that idea but um, yeah sorry no. I think we, we I mean our, our, our community our society has evolved mainly as an oral mm-hmm. society and we need to recognise that we need to remember that when we look at conserving mm-hmm. that the stories can be passed on from mouth to ear and it's often the safest way mm-hmm. because often you have to be initiated into the body before the knowledge will be passed on to you and a lot of traditional societies are like that mm-hmm. they don't just give power the power of knowledge to somebody who don't have the power mm-hmm. to receive we've got to remember that also that everything we do shouldn't be necessarily go up on Facebook or Twitter. You understand that exposed. There are things that that have so little value that they can, but things with real value mm-hmm. must be passed on to those who are initiated, who have the power to 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 not allow those things to destroy them, but to preserve them and move them on. How we do that? in a physical way it's not so easy to, to come up with an answer right. but we have to realize that we need, that is necessary mm-hmm. okay. so for me a lot of what i do have history enshrined have the politics of the time mm-hmm. enshrined of the politics of the recent past enshrined in them mm-hmm. and so if you can read as an initiated one you can get a lot from of the power from the stuff that I do. Whereas a little baby will come in here and just look at the thing and wonder. Wow. And a little baby might be 50 years old as well as, 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 well as five months. All right. <laughs> truly, truly. <laughs> um, on that point, Am I making sense? Very you? much so. This is probably the last question, but just thinking about transmission and um, I wanted to ask you in terms of generations and younger generations and is there anything specific that you're doing in terms of that transmission or is there anything you think should be done or just I suppose your views on intergenerational working to kind of keep stories and histories flowing? Well, I've got my website which you know and a lot of people uh, and I saw most of them are young people Mm -hmm. because uh, whenever essay needs to be written you know, I could get 5,000 a day. Mm-hmm. So I know it's going out there and it's not necessarily the older people, but a lot of the young people see the work 
end because it's a new it's a different direction because they're not going to find that and that approach and attitude anywhere else um to sit with young people and talk i mean i've done that for years i ran a youth club for a while um uh, I went. I did a lot of stuff in schools, mm -hmm. from primary up to tertiary. Um, but I'm getting a little bit weak now. I can't muscle my way around like I did before. Mm -hmm. But whenever I get the chance to have conversations with younger people, and often they've seen my website and they want to ex expand their ideas or their understanding or knowledge of it. Um, but at my age, I think that's as much as I can do. Mm -hmm. Put my stuff on the website, uh, do the occasional exhibition, and hope that it will have some influence on, on the younger people. Because it's an alternative to what they're exposed to okay. in art or in culture. Do you see from, the, from your kind of coming up in this country and then the successive generations, do you see kind of a stasis, a progression, a regression, and w w what's the current that you observe? <laughs> you, you have to be conscious about the thing, mm -hmm. because, you know, the British have a way of transforming you mm -hmm. and remaking you into their own image. Okay. So, I mean, I learned a story of the Jews mm -hmm. who came here towards the end of the 19th century, and the struggle was to make them into proper English people. Get rid of their their their, their religion, mm -hmm. convert them to Christianity, and so on. But it's not that easy with us. At least that's what I thought. Mm -hmm. That yes, they the Jew can become a, a Gentile mm -hmm. simply by not cutting off his young son's foreskin, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. He can become a Gentile, change his name, and take on a Gentile name. Mm -hmm. We Africans can't do that. At least that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, and that's what I thought 40, 30, 40 years ago and, and before. I thought we were distinct and they can't change us. Mm -hmm. But I'm surprised to see how much they've changed us wow. over the 60 years I've been here. Wow. And I get worried. Mm -hmm. But then I realize that there might be a point down the line and you can only hope that something will happen that will shock them back into realizing and understanding that they have a role in the world and the world the role is not necessarily to simply become invisible in Britain or in America or in France or anything. You have a role. I've got a piece there that's called the mitochondrial Eve, mm -hmm. which I've only just discovered this thing called mitochondria, mm -hmm. which is something that they use to trace through the female line back to the original mm -hmm. woman, the first woman, supposedly in Africa. Wow. Okay. And we have to acknowledge we have a responsibility. Mm -hmm. Being the first, will we be the last? We have to be conscious of that. Mm -hmm. And that is all I can say to the youngster. Don't become invisible. The more visible you are, the more your ancestors will be pleased. Okay. I think that's a good place to 
All right, and sir. So thank you very much for your time. And thank you. Oh, okay.